Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 57 of Haunted Muse, and the 13th featuring my novel, Skeleton's Blood, read in a weekly serial format. Okay, here we go. Skeleton's Blood, Chapter 13. I'm not the slightest bit surprised by any of it, Alva snipped haughtily, after Edith finished delivering her synopsis of what had transpired among Lowe's seed in the forest. I knew they were going to act as soon as possible. I could just feel it. Although Alva and the other two had intended on enjoying a quiet, late-night supper of venison blood poured into crystal goblets and then retiring to bed early, none of them could rest. Gradually, they'd made their way back downstairs to the gold room, each attempting to look more nonchalant than the others. None of them wanted to give the appearance that they were concerned with something so trivial as American politics. By the time Edith returned, it was after three in the morning. Beatrice was pretending to sketch, but only spidery circles and lines covered her page, while Elizabeth tinkled through rounds of a never-ending waltz on the piano. Mercy sat in the window seat, attempting to sew a quilt square, but dropping every other stitch. Alva was hiding her anxiety worst of all, picking up an old leather-bound novel and holding it close to her face, as if reading, when in actuality she was merely staring at the same lines over and over. However, as Edith materialized soundlessly before them, the response was as if a waiter had dropped a huge tray of fine china beside their table. Every premise of nervous activity halted immediately. Well, I'm never surprised to learn about anything new and dreadful that Harry's done, Elizabeth said. After all, I was married to him for years. But Joseph? I've always wondered why he chose to join them instead of us. He's such a sensitive man. It doesn't seem as if he belongs there. The key word is man, Beatrice quipped wryly. Believe me, after all the no-talent, faux-bohemian, quote-unquote, artists that I had to tolerate for years, I know the type. All intellectual men perceive themselves to be superior to women. They think we're frivolous. Well, they're serious, and it blinds them to whatever they choose not to see in their male colleagues. Joseph Hazard was no different. How many of you did he ever invite to his seances at Druid's Dream when he was still in his original human life and inviting half of the world? He invited me, Alva said primly, patting her hair. You don't count, Beatrice said. He only invited you because you had more money than God and he was trying to get in good with your husband, Oliver, and he thought the Belmont name meant something. Joseph was just as bad as Harry when it came to collecting influential political connections. I don't know, Elizabeth disagreed. I don't think Harry Lair had any equals when it came to his desire to climb the social ladder. Tired of listening to this conversation, like so many others, devolve into chatter about character and social position, Mercy interrupted them. Ladies, can we stay focused on the matter at hand, please? She turned to Edith, who was sitting with her back to the firelight, sparkling brighter than any gold in the luminescent room. What do you think they intend to do with the young man whom Alistair turned? Phoenix, 
didn't you say his name was? Will he be kept in thrall, or are they just waiting until later to kill him? I'm not sure, Edith replied, her form shimmering in the firelight as she pondered the question. Although, I think that since Alistair turned him, and because he was so quick to cooperate, he might end up a permanent thrall, a sort of pet for Alistair to milk as he pleases from time to time. That's dreadful, said Mercy, shuddering. Ned is bad enough, but once he's had his first drink of a new thrall, he almost never goes back. Alistair, though, ugh, she winced again. He drains them so dry that they're like zombies. The other vampires watched Mercy, knowing that her concern for Phoenix was born out of her own abuse in the first years following her turning by Lowe's seed. Do you think that there's anything we could do to help him, too? She asked the others, but looking at Beatrice most directly. Like you helped me. Only if he's willing, Beatrice said. The reason I was able to bring you into our seed and out of Lowe's thrall was because you had already rejected him and begun to separate yourself. With newly made vampires, though, it's much harder. The pull of their initial turning is still very strong. Mercy shot Beatrice a glance so desperate that Beatrice softened, adding, But we can't always try. I thought you were steering us back toward the matter of how to resolve this issue with President Graves, Mercy, Alva butted in, still sore at having the conversation taken away from her, not to divert our attention further with some puppy-love rescue mission. Mercy narrowed her eyes at Alva resentfully, but said nothing further. Do you always have to trample everyone's dreams, Alva? Elizabeth sighed. Truthfully, Mercy, I feel sorry for the boy, too. And I promise you I will do everything I can to help you and Beatrice bring him over to us, if he is willing. But Alva is right about one thing. We must attend to this matter of keeping the president protected first. I wish we knew whether Kobe and Susan had managed to bring Catherine around. Just as Elizabeth finished speaking, a loud crack split the air, as if the trunk of a large oak tree had just snapped and fell. No one brings me anywhere. I appear only when and if I'm ready. Alva shook her head reproachfully. The woman who had materialized before them was dressed head to toe in a long cloak pieced together from dozens of rabbit pelts. The hem of the cloak was ragged, like that of her velvet gown, which was trimmed in ornate patterns of gold thread. Her hair was wild, standing out from her head in all directions a mass of thick, red corkscrew curls. Nevertheless, her skin was alabaster white, and her lavender eyes crackled with magnetic electricity. She was both beautiful and terrible to view, all at the same time. The kind of woman whom other women hated, but men could not tear their eyes away from. Well, look who's here, Catherine, the crowning delight of any occasion. Catherine favored Alva with a twisted smile as another spirit materialized beside her. I've talked over the matter with Susan, Catherine nodded in the direction of the ghost by her side, and with my husband. The three of us have agreed that I will accompany Susan early tomorrow evening to visit my granddaughter and to persuade her to see reason regarding the threats to her life. 
Catherine glanced around the circle, drew herself up to her full six feet plus in height, and continued. Also, Kobe has asked me to confer with you about an additional offer that we might make to Tamika if she is interested. We would like your permission to ask President Tamika Graves to become a full member of this seed. If we are asking her to give up the deal that she made with Prine in exchange for additional profits for her share of SoFarm from the New American Healthcare Service, Susan explained further, then we have to offer some kind of incentive other than altruism. A positive reason to choose us rather than just accepting what we tell her and assuming a defensive posture against Prine and possibly Low too. She seems to be very interested in the gift of eternal life. An offer of it, without strings attached, might be sufficient to warrant a change of her allegiance. Alva pursed her lips. President Graves's tendency to change allegiances is precisely what concerns me about offering her the gift. Clearly, you haven't been informed about tonight's developments. She inclined her head toward Edith, who still sat flickering in front of the mantel. Edith has just informed us that she overheard Alistair telling his new thrall that President Grays had already pledged her interest in SoFarm and its lucrative contracts to Lowe's Seed, or at least he implied it. If this is true, then that means she's already decided of her own accord to double-cross Prime in favor of Lowe. We all know the folly of that decision. Lowe's seed will never suffer a female vampire to live among them as an equal, but she, in her arrogance, does not. Thus, although I would normally be delighted to welcome a new woman of her caliber and intellect into our seed, how are we to know that she will have any lasting allegiance to us at all, especially if Dodge brings her in as a full vampire, free to do as she pleases, which he always does? What is to stop her from double-crossing us, too, and then making a new deal with some other vampire who might convince her that she no longer needed us to keep her safe from Prine and Lowe? Yes, I admit, even earlier this evening, I thought she might be a good candidate to receive the gift. However, based on this new information, I'm afraid that President Graves is just like all other politicians, too self-absorbed to be trusted. We're not sure, though, Edith interjected, whether Alistair was lying when he insinuated to Phoenix that his stepmother had already accepted their offer. Alistair prides himself on his powers of persuasion. He's never averse to bending the truth whenever it serves him. For all we know, President Graves could be completely unaware of anything else beyond what she's agreed to with Prime. Edith lifted her palms to the air. Until we speak with President Graves directly, everything is just speculation. Catherine nodded along with what Edith was saying, then narrowed her eyes at Alva. Which brings me back around to my initial reservations with this entire endeavor. If we can't tell who is telling the truth, why interfere at all then? Why not just let Lowe or Prine kill her? We will survive. Regardless, after all, we are already immortal. Vampires, witches, ghosts, what does it matter to us? Who is the president? Susan gave Catherine a stern look, her silver silhouette wavering as her temper rose. No, 
It doesn't matter who is president, but it certainly matters whether there is a president or not. We spoke about this, Catherine, already. Don't pretend like you don't know or don't care. You have a duty, two of them, to your granddaughter, yes, but to your country also. It isn't just that Prine and Lowe want to kill one president. It's that they intend for there to be no more presidents at all. And shortly thereafter, no America either. All that will be left is whichever one of them prevails from their inevitable death match and the legions of thralls and human prey left in their wake. And don't think that they won't come for us in the end once they've established control over all other channels of power. No matter how much you may choose to believe so, we are not immune. Catherine scowled at Susan. I have only one duty, and that is to my husband. I told you before we left Block Island that there was only one reason why I would attempt to make Tamika see reason, and that was because Kobe asked me to. He is the one person, the only person, in my 300 years on this earth who has ever risked anything for me, and I love him for it. You speak of these other duties? <laughs> what duty do I have to a granddaughter who would likely not claim me if she saw me as a regular woman on the streets? I have nothing more in common with a spoiled rich woman like Tamika than I do the Queen of England or with these women here. Catherine motioned to the side of the room where Alva, Elizabeth, and Beatrice sat, looking slightly appalled at the comparison. Catherine continued, Yes, Tamika has my gift of sight, but what has she done with it? Used it for her own political gain. Not as I have for the benefit of mankind, she's made a mockery of my life's work. A true healer gives more to the world than she takes. She's proud that the sick will provide just enough for her to live on in gratitude and chooses to stand as a servant of humanity. The making of medicine, the healing of those who come to you in pain and need, is not something to build an empire on. Healing is a divine art, a gift from the gods. Yet what Tamika has done already with her husband's drug empire one that has made far more zombies of men than this peeling plague ever will. She has profited billions of dollars that she spends all on herself in useless luxury. And now she seeks to bleed the sick and vulnerable even more by promoting empty promises while she continues to line her purse and broker deals with vampires that will ultimately cost them their very lives. She is an abomination. The rest of the room sat hushed as Catherine kept raving. Nor do I feel any sense of duty or allegiance to America. What has America done for me or my husband? Before I'd even set foot upon that rocky shore, I was preyed upon by these so-called Christian Americans. They starved me and lured the ship I was on to wreck so that they could try to steal me blind. If not for Kobe, they would have let me burn to death on it too. Yet they dared not touch me after they knew what I truly was. Then they came begging for my medicines, which I still gave 
out of my sense of duty as a healer. Catherine leaned on the word as she sought, shot Susan an irritated look. But they would not welcome me into their society. Oh, no. Especially not after they saw the man whom I'd chosen for my husband. A man who was better than all of them. And then look how they treated him. Stole him away from his village as a boy. Killed his mother. Made him a slave. Yes, Kobe was lucky to have been bought by Donovan's family, where at least he wasn't beaten and shamed. But he still had to work twice as hard to buy himself free out of it. And then when he did, when one good American man took a chance on making him a business partner, what did the rest of those jealous bastards do when they couldn't stand that a black man was more successful than them? robbed all of the silver from his shop, beat him to a pulp and left him for dead right out there in the middle of the street. If not for Donovan, I would have been a widow for the rest of my long days on this earth. That's what America has done for me, Catherine spat. A land of murderers and thieves. It has been a terrible struggle, true, said Kobe as he stepped into the room, removing his traveling hat and setting it on the table as he acknowledged the others. But we've prevailed through the power of our own wits and the help of a few true friends. We have survived. Catherine, I'm afraid that in your zeal to establish you owe nothing to anyone save me, you've forgotten the duty that you also owe to yourself in this matter. Catherine looked at Kobe questioningly as he continued. Even if you have no interest in saving Tamika, although I believe her very much worth saving, and that she could be brought round to see the misarrangement of her priorities once made a member of this sea, and even if you have ardent your art to such things, there is still one more duty for you to consider. The duty to rid yourself in the world of Captain Andrew Brooke, or to call him by his true name, Captain Ned Lowe. Kirby turned from his wife to face the other women. I'd not planned on coming here again tonight, but I feared my wife might waver in her agreement to meet with President Graves, so I thought it was best to make an appearance and suggest one more option that might be a help to us all. Every eye in the room was on Kobe as he explained the proposition. I'm well aware of the code Donovan has established for us, which prevents any member of our seed from killing another vampire, brawl, or human, unless that human is faced with death, and all the seed has agreed that he or she may be turned. Also, I understand this code as analogues in the codes of other seeds. Captain Lowe's seed, for example, states clearly that free vampires may not kill other free vampires, only thralls and humans, whom they consider to be inferior. Last, I understand that lone vampires, such as Prime, who exist outside of any seed, are not bound by codes at all, and thus may be assassinated at any time. Therefore, what if we allow Catherine to put her natural rage to good use. Meaning? 
said Alva, leaning forward in anticipation of where Kobe's argument was headed. Meaning that if Lowe is the one who actually shows up to kill President Graves, why should we not allow Catherine to kill him? Catherine's eyes glittered like amethysts at the prospect. But, Kobe, haven't you always said that I am also bound by Dodge's code since I am your wife and you're a member of the sea? Yes, Kobe said hesitantly, afraid of Catherine's reaction. However, I was more trying to keep with the spirit of the code rather than the letter. Until now, I've preferred to keep the peace whenever possible. You can be a little volatile in temperament, my dear, from time to time, and I didn't want a temperamental reaction to cause a war among seeds. Plus, the actual wording of the code does not say anything about witches specifically. Only vampires of the sea may not kill others of their kind. Alva's face brightened from its serious expression. That is an excellent point, Kobe, one that I believe we've overlooked in our haste. It would greatly enhance our ability to keep the president secure if we were defending against only one vampire rather than two and the other one leading a big sea. Yes, but how do we know that Captain Lowe will visit President Graves alone? Mercy asked. He seems to prefer moving with others when stalking his prey. Alva pondered this carefully, once again trying to be considerate of the younger vampire's personal knowledge of Lowe's methods of attack. Another good point, Mercy. We do not know that Lowe will seek to meet with the President alone. However, given the fact that she is probably surrounded by extreme amounts of security, he will most likely keep his visibility to a minimum, which means that there is a good chance he might be alone. Looking from side to side at the other vampires gathered in the room, Alva asked, Should we put it to a vote, then? I know Don's not here, but he's the only one. If everyone else is unanimous, I think we can grant Catherine permission to attempt to kill Captain Lowe, if the opportunity presents itself. All those in favor? Aye, 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 replied everyone in the room, even the ghosts. Good, replied Alva, taking a long breath in relief. It's settled then. Susan and Catherine will go at first darkness to see President Graves. Hopefully, before Ned Lowe and whomever he brings with him will arrive. Susan, I think it's best if you go in first. You have a much more calming, diplomatic presence. No offense, Catherine, Alva added quickly. Catherine waved her off, not wanting to quibble and spoil the satisfying turn the evening had taken for her. Susan can explain to her everything that she thinks is relevant from what we've discussed tonight. Just use your best judgment, Susan, I trust you. Then, when you think the time is right, signal for Catherine to enter. Catherine can reinforce what you said, and if President Graves has already spent who knows how much time talking to a ghost, then the arrival of a witch to give corroborating testimony should be somewhat less of a shock. If you can convince her to go before Lowe arrives, do so. 
Don't look so crestfallen, Catherine. I know you're champing at the bit. Alva stopped to judge the witch's reaction, but Catherine looked away from her. So she turned her attention to the ghost, Susan, again. If you can talk her into coming here before Lowe even gets there, then that's the safest thing. However, since she's most likely being very cautious at this point, that chance is slim. So if you see Lowe arriving alone, hide yourselves away. And if the opportunity presents itself, Catherine has permission to engage and kill him, if possible. Kobe, observing his wife trying to hide the excitement dancing in her eyes at the prospect, asked Alva, And what if Lo isn't alone? Catherine shot Kobe a look that said, Killjoy, which he returned with a smoke that said, Yes, it's because I love you. Then she should do what she can to take the president away safely with her by force if it becomes clear she is in actual physical danger. However, Catherine should not attempt to engage multiple vampires by herself. Alva turned to face the witch directly. Is that clear, Catherine? Grudgingly, the witch nodded. And are you in agreement also, Susan? Yes, the ghost replied. I am willing to do anything it takes to protect the president. Excellent, said Alva, relieved that the matter was settled. Although I wish Donovan were here, I know he was planning to speak with his new scribe privately tonight, as he plans to share knowledge with her about our sieve and its methods. Still, I believe he'd be in agreement with what we've decided. I will look forward to seeing everyone here tomorrow, at least by midnight, if not earlier. One by one, the vampires and ghosts dispersed, leaving Catherine and Kobe alone in the gold room. Did you really think I would try to back out after I had agreed with you and Susan that I would help? Kobe looked down and chuckled softly to himself, not really wanting to answer his wife's question. <laughs> that means yes. Catherine answered herself. She reached out tenderly to touch her husband's chin and lift his gaze to meet hers. Through the power of her touch, she spoke to him without words, spirit to spirit. It's almost impossible to keep secrets from me. How did you manage to keep me clueless about the loophole in the code for so long? Made a point of not thinking about it, Kobe thought back. May not be good at keeping secrets from you, but I'm excellent at shutting out memories. I'd rather forget. Catherine blinked slowly, trying not to recall any of the horrible visions that her husband had shared with her over the centuries about his life as a slave. She'd seen them all, or so she thought. The day that he and his mother had been captured, Rope nets thrown down over them while they fought like wild animals trying to escape. The nights he'd spent curled up in a ball, his feet tucked beneath him and his fingers balled into his little fists so that the enormous rats on the ship could not bite them off while he slept in the holding cells. The nightmare voyage across the middle passage in which his mother, a shaman's daughter, had tried to minister to the sick and dying through softly praying and singing over them since she had no herbs or medicines available to ease their suffering. 
And then, finally, the day that the slave drivers had caught her chanting and decided that she was to blame for why the winds had stalled, leaving the ship motionless in doldrums. They'd bound her, hand and foot, tied a gag in her mouth to stop her screaming, and after reading some Bible verses over her that included the passage about how one should not suffer a witch to live, put her out to sea in a small coracle they'd filled with straw and kindling. The last time Kobe had seen his mother, she was floating away from him, engulfed in flames, carried away on waves that had begun to move, ironically, at last. Taking his wife's hand, Kobe pressed his palm to hers. Instantly, Catherine was brought back into the memory of that day through Kobe's eyes. Although the vision lasted for only a few seconds before Kobe dropped his hand, Catherine saw what he'd meant for her to see. The captain's face as he turned back from the ship's rail, just after he dropped the burning torch into the tiny boat that held Kobe's mother. Although his eyes were still cornflower blue, not the glowing green they'd later become, she knew the long, blonde, curling hair surrounding the man's face, which would have been handsome had it not possessed an extremely hard quality to it, as if every bone had been broken and then ossified back into perfect alignment, even stronger than before. The face of Captain Edward Ned Lowe, or as he'd introduced himself to Catherine on the day her own ship had set sail from Rotterdam 15 years before that, Captain Andrew Brooke. Making the connection, Catherine gasped. That's why I've always pulled away before, Kirby whispered, and why I let you believe the code included you too. I know you've always been willing to do anything for me, as I have for you. We have a bond like no other. Yet I know you have a temper too, and that you'd have sought a way to destroy the captain if you knew that he'd wronged not only you, but me as well. But he's dangerous, not only because he's a vampire, but because he's cunning. He can shift his shape and his personality to be anything he thinks you want him to be. After I first went into service with Donovan's family and he told me about this chap his friend was going to marry, I started to wonder. By the time I had finally seen him in person, it was too late. Eliza was already engaged to be married to him. I was near buying my freedom at the time and I didn't want to make waves, so I said nothing to Dawn about it. That he'd been a slave trader under a different name for a while before coming to Boston. A name, Andrew Brooke, that he took up again once he felt too much eat living under his other name of Ned Lowe. Catherine drew her husband protectively close to her once more, realizing why he'd hidden this pain from her as she wondered aloud. Why, though, my darling, have you waited so long? Haven't there been many other times for you to seek your vengeance against Lo? Why, why now? Kobe slid his strong hands down his wife's forearms, still clasping 
her hands at their sides. Her hands were the only unlovely thing about her, gnarled like the roots of an old oak, the only part of her body that showed its age. You tell me, Kirby said, when has it ever been the right time for a black man to seek vengeance within the context of American history, hmm? The question was intended to be rhetorical, but both knew what he meant. When have we ever cried out with the pains that afflicted our stolen race, when such cries were not met with either hostility or complete and willing ignorance? Never until now, as a black man in America had such an opportunity for an audience. And now that we're listening, Catherine asked, holding Kirby pressed tightly to her so that he would not have to endure the indignity of being seen crying. What shall you say to her? So that this granddaughter of ours, Catherine screwed up her face as she tasted the distasteful terms of their relationship, can be made to see that there might be something of value in protecting the lives of others which is more precious than the money she constantly craves, like some sort of mad alchemist in search of gold. She'll understand enough, Kirby said, for though her path through this life has been much smoother than mine, she'll still recognize its twists and turns. For, like Odysseus, the black person in America is forced upon a journey that, no matter how straightly he or she plotted the path to begin with, it's still fraught with hidden dangers that every person of colour must confront on their way. Although you are right in saying that I would not have made the same sorts of choices as Tamika, I recognise their nature. They are the same kinds of trade-offs that anyone of ambition and drive would have to make when coming in from the outside. Kobe pulled his wife's hands together in front of him, smoothing their mottled surface as he spoke. And yet, somehow, amongst all these twists and turns where others have lost their way, Tamika Allery Graves, our granddaughter, truly, by human blood, has prevailed. Surely, that of itself alone should tell you that she is truly special, that no matter what her moral failings might be, she is still worth saving. Catherine studied her husband carefully, from the rough twists of his long braids to the regal line of his cheekbones, resting at last on his eyes, which glowed a warm golden green. She grasped his hands tightly, holding them palm to palm. And yet you know the visions I have seen of her, Catherine insisted. No matter what you do or how much of yourself you invest in trying to save her, Tamika will die. As I have told you so many times, it is as certain as if Moses had written it on the stone. The only question is whether Prime or Low will be the one to kill her. Why risk yourself? Kobe's peridot gaze heated to near-blinding intensity. 
who is to say there's any risk at all? For if you've only seen her death, but not her killer, could it not be possible she is not to be killed at all, but turned by someone else? Catherine grasped his meaning. You mean to come with us then, Susan and myself, so that if she agrees to join our seed and forsake the others, you will be the one to whom she owes allegiance, at least until she's ready to become independent. Kobe nodded, kissing his wife's hands and pulling her closer to him. Ew better to protect her than her grandfather, someone who knows the struggle and the shortcomings she has, yet still finds a way to be proud of all she's done, because he has bled from those same wounds. Who else in this life or the next would give her the benefit of such doubts and allow her to find acceptance at last? Who else but me? Yielding at last, Catherine had no reply. She and Kobe simply held each other in the quietness of the massive gold room, which glittered impartially, resplendently secure in its cold beauty as it always had been for over a hundred years. This is the end of chapter 13. Tune in next time for the next chapter of Skeleton's Blood here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. Yeah.